at Berean Bible Fellowship. And we look forward to God's blessing as we continue our worship together. So I would like you to follow along in God's word. If you have Jeremiah chapter 33, let's get to that place again. I want to read the text for this morning, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into the message here for today. We're going to reread verse number 3. So look down at uh, Jeremiah 33, 3, which says this, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Just out of curiosity, how many people know that as a memory verse? Put your hand up. Okay, a good number of you. That's a great one. I commend it to you. I hope maybe you'll uh, take some renewed interest in it. It's familiar after you hear the message this morning. Right now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given. We thank you for your wonderful grace and your presence with us at all times. And Father, we know there's a special sense in which you meet with us here as we come to meet with you on the Lord's Day. Uh, we claim the promise that where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you are in the midst. And we desire to honor you. We desire to be cleansed of our sins so that we might not uh, have hindered fellowship with you today. But instead, our, there may be a free flow between us and you of your message, your spirit, uh, your strength, your nourishment, all those things that you intend for us uh, by bringing us to the house of the Lord today. We know that you also desire us to glorify you. You tell us in your word, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And we desire to glorify you today, for we know that you are great and mighty, as it says in our text. And I pray, Father, you will just uh, give me the liberty and freedom to be able to proclaim this message and to give the people of God the thoughts that you have given to me. And just watch over and bless us now in these next few moments as we look into God's word. For we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You know, thinking about a new year, I was doing a lot of thinking about this actually this week. And... The best way I knew to summarize the thoughts that God had given to me is, you know, in a new year, there is so much that is both unknown and anticipated. Think about that for a moment, because I've tried to choose those words pretty carefully to reflect the thoughts that the Lord gave. But, you know, there is a general sense in which that's pretty much always true. And I think just because of the fact that we celebrate the beginning of a new year, we're, we're, we're calling to mind maybe things from the past year, but we're also looking out into a year of that which we do not know because we really don't know what 2019 holds for us. But we have so many aspirations. We have so many things that we anticipate. We have leftover burdens from the year before. We have outstanding prayer requests. There are just so many things that you can think about, and we look forward with anticipation to a new year. What is God going to do? Well, on the 1st of January, kind of interesting really, um, I was sitting in the living room there in, the, in, in, in our home where I go in the early morning to have my time with the Lord, and it, really I didn't even read Jeremiah chapter 33. It wasn't in my Bible reading for the day. I did the several chapters from the Old Testament. I did the chapter from the New Testament. I did the two Psalms, and uh, I went to have my prayer time. And I find so often uh, that we think of prayer as just our communicating with God and making our petitions made known unto him, and that's part of it. But, you know, prayer is designed to be a two-way street. Prayer is designed to be communion. And I, I find so often that as I am in the process of prayer, and especially as I ask myself, force myself, if you want to say it that way, to go back over the things that I've read in the scripture this morning and ask myself, now, where did I learn from that? As I found that to be a very helpful practice for me, and uh, maybe you would too, but... I often find that God uh, brings things to mind and speaks to your heart in ways that uh, are unusual but dear. 
And as I was praying about this and thinking about this, God just brought this Jeremiah 33, 3 to my mind. And bear in mind, uh, this was not a part of my Bible reading that day. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And thinking about that against the backdrop of so many things that we anticipate, but that the fact is that what is going to happen in 2019 is unknown to us, I just decided, you know, I think I want to claim this verse for my verse of the year. So I'm ahead of the service tonight. I've already given mine, so all the time belongs to you tonight. Jeremiah 33.3, but I want to preach a little bit about this this morning. I believe there are three things here that describe or help us to understand how this promise works and about the incredible blessings that it seems to describe. Before we get to those three things, I want to be sure I say it at least once. I hope that I'll mention it a number of times because it's really the key thing I think we have to take away from this. That somehow in this magnificent promise that we have, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. God is establishing a direct link between prayer and what I described earlier about that which we anticipate and that which we don't know about 2019. Think about it. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And there is a direct link to the carrying out of what God is promising in that verse to prayer. So this message really this morning is about prayer, but you might find that there are some different thoughts here. First of all, I would like to mention there is a condition. When you study the Bible, you will find it useful on occasion to notice that of the promises that God gives, which are many, many, many promises that we find in the Bible, sometimes they are conditional. That is, there's something that's a prerequisite. There's something God tells us we need to do in order for him to fulfill that promise to us. Other times they're unilateral, they're unconditional. God just commits himself to something. Many times the covenants in the Old Testament are that way. God told that to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to multiply your seeds so that they'll be more than you can count in the stars. And God committed himself to that unilaterally. There wasn't anything that Abraham had to work or do. God simply committed himself to that unilaterally. So when you come to Jeremiah 33.3, ask yourself right now, from based just on what we've said so far while you're still awake, which category does this fall into, conditional or unconditional? Yeah, it really falls into the first category because it's conditional. It's based on what it says at the very beginning of the verse, call. That's the word that I'd like for you to focus on right now. Kind of interesting, too, that even the, gram the grammatical construction of this particular verse tends to support what I'm saying. Uh, probably not too many people here have had the experience that I've had in how I'll relate this to you now, what I'm talking about at this point. But I can remember distinctly sitting in a second-year Hebrew class. So, in other words, that's studying the ancient languages and the language that the Old Testament was written in in particular, which is primarily Hebrew. And so here we are sitting in this class. Now we did a lot of work in that class with the book of Jeremiah. The teacher just uh, liked that book or chose that book as useful uh, to make a number of the points that he wanted to make. Well, one day we were sitting in the class and we were looking at this Jeremiah 33.3 and he said, you know, Really, the form here in the verb, um, call unto me and I will show, the show verb that we see there. 
He said, really, the, the, the force of that can really be taken as a jussive. Now, I realize you probably never heard that word in your life, and it doesn't matter worth a hill of beans. I'm just telling you what was going on in the class. And he explained that to us because it's sort of a, a force that underscores what we're saying here. That if you wanted to bring that out, if you, would, if you were looking for some way in English to try to capture what I just said in a little more forceful way, you might say something like this, call unto me and I can answer thee. Or call unto me so that I can answer thee. Or if you call, I can answer you. But the point taken is that it simply tends to underscore exactly what we're talking about right now, that God is establishing this link between prayer and the fulfillment of this promise to show us great and mighty things which thou knowest not. It might be difficult to understand, beloved, but God has determined to operate in conjunction with and through prayer. Why I say that that might be difficult to understand is it would be pretty easy, I suppose, to sit there and think to yourself, or just to be pondering, and think to yourself, you know, um, don't we believe that God is sovereign? Um, don't we believe that God has ordained all the things that are going to come to pass in 2019? Um, the powers that be are ordained of God, so God knew about the last election, and all of these types of things, and, and we very often comfort ourselves by talking about the truth of God's sovereignty. Well, I don't think you would dispute this. I think that no one would dispute that Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the 19th century, was obviously a very firm believer in the truths of God's sovereignty. But yet he had this to say about prayer. He said, I cannot tell how much I owe to the prayers of my good mother. Think about that for a moment. Well, Spurgeon would be the first one to tell you that he believed that his name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. He would be the first to tell you he believed in all of those types of things, but yet now he's talking about prayer and how much effect the prayers of his mother really had. He goes on to say, and this is kind of interesting, he said, I remember once hearing her pray, Now, Lord, if my children go on in sin, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must be swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold on Christ and claim him as their personal savior. Well, I'm not going to take the time to tell you this morning, if you don't know it, the, the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, but it's an incredible story, a very encouraging story. But Spurgeon believed that prayer had a bearing on that. Just as much as he believed that his name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, he believed that prayer had a bearing on that. It might be difficult for us to compute those things because our minds kind of seem to go along a, a one-track plane and, and we're not always capable of merging certain truths in God's word that God sees as plain as day. And we see them like, like railroad tracks. They seem to go parallel to each other and, and, and at no point do they converge. But God doesn't have a problem with that because he see things, sees things differently than we do. God is determined to link prayer to how he operates. In fact, I think we could go so far as to say, based on Jeremiah 33, as well as a couple of other passages I'd like to point out to you, that God has determined that prayer is well nigh a condition to his richest blessings. Now, think about this, and you don't have to nod your head or raise your hand. I wouldn't put you on the spot. But, you know, regardless this morning of how faithful you are currently to prayer, probably no one here this morning in the service is not going to say, God has blessed me. 
But when you think about God's richest blessings, there seems to be a link up between our willingness to pray and God pouring out those richest of blessings. We have the text here, call unto me so that I can answer you and show you great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Well, that great and mighty part sounds to me like we're taking a step above the ordinary. Over in the New Testament, maybe you'd like to look quickly at Mark chapter 9. I just, I just want to give you a couple of other verses. The verse uh, in Mark chapter 9, verse 29 is pretty clear, really. Uh, these things sort of hint at this, and I think maybe establish this thought. Mark 9.29, And he said unto them, that is the disciples, This type or kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Well, so what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. There's this hubbub that's been going on because this man has brought his son, who's very cruelly demon-possessed to the disciples who were not a part of the Mount of Transfiguration experience. Remember, that was Peter, James, and John. The others seem to be below. They're not a part of that. The man complains, I brought my son to your disciples, and they couldn't help him. They couldn't cast the demon out. Later, the disciples themselves are troubled by that, which I think we should be too, when we sense that we are powerless, when we sense that we don't really have the power of God on our lives like it should be. We should be troubled by that. And we're not the disciples. We don't go around casting out demons. But you see the application I'm making. And in this particular case, then, verse 28 says, when he was come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? Jesus said, well, there's a link up between having that kind of power and prayer. Look at this in the next verse. We'll read it again. And he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I would have taken that probably as a rebuke, wouldn't you? If I were the disciples, I would have said, wow, I must not be as faithful to prayer as I really need to be. Turn a couple pages over. We'll just look at one more. Also in Mark's gospel, um, we, I think you talked about this somewhat recently in a different message, but, you know, the disciples were really enamored with this thing that happened when Jesus was going in in the, in the morning and he saw that fig tree without figs on it. And we have what we call the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus said, no man eat figs of thee hereafter because it had the leaves and no figs. He cursed the fig tree. And then they came back the next morning and they saw the thing dead from the roots up. And that shocked them. How could that be that it would die so quickly and die also from the roots up? Jesus says to them in verse number 22 when they state this um, incomprehension to him or this surprise to him, he says in verse 22, And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. And then he goes on to say this, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain. So most of us would, would understand the, uh, the figurative usage here. A mountain is something you can't move. We have those things in our lives, don't we? Things that we're very well aware of and we just can't, there's just nothing we can do about it. I mean it might be an illness that, that, we, that we have no control over and that we have to commit to God in prayer. It might be a need of a different kind, but we have those things. And so Jesus says to them, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the midst of the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart, that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe ye receive them, and ye shall have them. So what's going on here is we not only have a direct link up between prayer and the richest of God's blessings, but 
God even goes a step further to tell us the kind of praying we need to do. We need to pray believingly. We need to have faith in God. Well, that's enough on that. I think we can establish the point. I want to say one more thing before leaving this condition, which is in the word call in our text this morning. I will say this. Jeremiah was not unfamiliar with calling on God. You can read through the book and find that to be true. Jeremiah certainly knew about this. Jeremiah certainly exercised this prerogative. However, sometimes, many times even, Jeremiah went to call on God, and if you read the verses and read what he has to say to God, the calling on God is more of a complaint. Now, I don't know what you think, but I treasure that about prayer. I used to always say in business meetings, you can say anything you need to say as long as you say it with the right spirit. You don't say it with the right spirit, keep your mouth shut. Well, I treasure the fact that, you know, you can come into God's presence and you can say what you need to say. You can even say it with the wrong spirit sometimes, but God may sort of point that out and rebuke you, right? But you can pour your heart out to God. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't it wonderful to know that God knows our frames, he understands that we're dust. And like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And boy, if there's no one else you can talk to, if there's no one else you can tell just exactly how you feel about something, if there's no one else... You have God, and you can tell him exactly how you feel. To me, that's a, that's a thing to be treasured about prayer. Well, Jeremiah did some of that. You can read the book and find different places, but if we just go back to the chapter before, let me point this out. Remember I told you the story, because we were talking about this in another message, too. You know, Jeremiah is the, the prophet of the captivity. He's, he's, uh, we, we call him the weeping prophet. There were so many times of trial and tears in his life as he was forced to behold all the different things that were befalling his nation, and he loved his nation. He was a patriot, and yet he knew the Babylonians were coming. He knew that people rejected his message. He suffered persecution for it, all these different things. In fact, in our chapter here, it starts off by telling us that he was still shut up. The word of the Lord came to him the second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. Well, he's still in the court of the prison in chapter 32. It's the first time the word of the Lord comes to him. Look at uh, verse number 2 of Jeremiah 32. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison. So same introduction to the chapter, it tells us. This is when the, the word of the Lord comes to him the first time in the court of the prison, in the context of chapter 32 and chapter 33. So you remember what we went over there, what he told him? He said, hey, your nephew's going to come to you. And he's going to say, I have a field, and the right of redemption is yours. Buy it. And I want you to buy it. Well, I, I really am proud of Jeremiah because Jeremiah had problems with that. But Jeremiah didn't hang any dirty laundry out. He just did what God told him to do. Later, when the thing was over with, Hanamiel came. That's the guy's name. I wouldn't want to be named Hanamiel. But anyway, he, the guy came and he said, buy my field. Well, it was kind of a, Jeremiah saying, you know, the land's going to go into captivity. This guy comes and says, buy my field. Why do you want to buy a field if the land's going into captivity? Not a very good investment, you might think. Jeremiah himself has some problems with it, and in verse 17 he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. And then we get down to verse 25 and show that he's not just praising the Lord, he's complaining because he says, And thou hast said unto me, O Lord, buy the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. 
And Jeremiah is kind of doing what I talked about a moment ago. He's going to say, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why do I have to pay him 17 shekels for a field and the land's going into captivity for 70 years? Doesn't make much sense. So I treasure that about prayer. I think you probably treasure that about prayer too, that God invites us to tell him how we feel. He invites us to pour out our heart so that he might commune and return with us and show us sometimes where we're wrong about those things. But that's the condition. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. Who's the source of these great and mighty blessings? That's our second thought. Where in the world would you find such incredible blessing? And that you find in the next two words, unto me. God says, I'm the source. God's the source of all of our blessings, not just the great and mighty things that we think of not just the richest of his blessings. He's the source of, of them all. Every good gift and every perfect gift, God said, is from above and from the Father of lights. Cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. They all come from God. God reminds us of that because once we acknowledge that and we pray about it, it puts God in a position to bless us even more because now we're giving God the praise. We understand where it all comes from. But my question to you is, Lots of people make promises. They can't always keep them. Sometimes they mean them well, mean well, and they just still can't keep them. Some people are insincere, that's true, but I'm not thinking so much about that. I want you to think about this scenario for a moment. How many times as parents have we done this, and our heart is in the right place? We really are trying to do the best we can think of to do by our children, especially in times of fear, but let's say you're going on a trip, and You've maybe flown on airplanes numbers of times, but your children never have. Or maybe you just have one of your children with you, but they've never flown before. And you can tell they're apprehensive about the thing. I don't blame them, to be totally honest with you. So they're apprehensive about the thing, and maybe you can read that. And, or maybe they even say something to you, and you say, maybe it's a little girl, and you lean over to her and you say, Honey, everything's going to be fine. You're going to be good. Everything's fine. Daddy's here. And that comforts her. That's, that's probably all she really needs to hear. You might even go into some discussion of the thing. You might even say, now here's what's going to happen. The plane's going to get to the end of this runaway. And it, the, guy, the pilot, don't even be afraid because the pilot's going to let it loose. He's going to ram those throttles to the firewall. And you're going to hear those engines spool up and you're gonna, we're going to shoot down the runway and it's going to be a while, depending on how big and how heavy the plane is. It's going to be a while, but eventually that plane's just going to lift off the ground. Now we're going to get up there and start flying, and you know what? He takes off on this particular runway from the airport, but maybe that's, he's headed east, but we're, we're going south. Well, he's going to have to turn. So don't worry. The plane will bank. One wing will dip lower than the other wing. Don't worry about it. That's just all normal. We might get up there and start flying for a while, and we might have the smoothest day in the world. I like those ones. But we might get up there, and it might get choppy. might be what the pilots call some rough air. So if it starts to get a little bumpy or something like that, Daddy's here, don't worry, everything will be fine. But you know, folks, think about this. In point of fact, once those wheels leave the ground, there's nothing Daddy can do. You know that? There's really nothing you can do. I've been on plane rides before and thought to myself, you know what, let me out of here. But all of a sudden I realized it's not quite doesn't work that way. Once they close that door and you're airborne, you can't just say, I, let me off here, would you? You can't do that. You're, you're in for the duration. Whatever it is, you're there. 
So there are times, and the point that I'm making, the question that I'm asking is, so is God good for it? And the answer to that is, he is. God's the only one I know who can write you a check for any amount, and he's always good for it. How do we know that from the verse? How does God reinforce that truth with Jeremiah? Look how he describes himself. First of all, he says, thus saith the Lord, verse 2, the maker thereof. Do you ever think what that really involves, not just in your head but in your heart, to know that God is the maker and sustainer of the universe? That God spoke the worlds into existence by his word. That's just a drop in the bucket to God in terms of his power and his ability to perform. If God has that kind of power and God makes you this promise, you know he's good for it. He has another description of himself that he gives in the verse. If you look at verse 2 again, the Lord, and you'll notice it's all caps, right? You see that? Then you get later in the verse and he says this, the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, and then again, it uses his name and it says, the Lord is his name. So what's it mean when it's in all caps as, a, as a, opposed to when just the first L is capitalized? Well, it's the translator's way of trying to alert you that, for example, in the Old Testament, your normal Lord with just a capital L would, would probably be Adonai. But in this particular verse, or in any verse, that the agreed-upon way of distinguishing this for readers, because you're not looking at the original language, to know when God is using his covenant name. You know what God's covenant name is? What is it? Jehovah. It's all caps. Lord is translated all caps. That's the, that's the way you do it when it's Lord, when it's translated Lord. Sometimes when it needs to be distinguished from something else, it's God in all caps. But... In this particular case, Lord is the agreed-upon way to do that in an English Bible. Why is that important? Because God is the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. God does not break his promises. And when Moses, when God called Moses to go back to the land of Egypt and to be his chosen deliverer of his people from bondage, he really gave a fairly good question to God, although it was a bit of an excuse. He said, they're going to ask me what your name is. Who sent you? He said, well, when you go back and they want to know who sent you, you tell them I am sent you. This is Jehovah. And God was explaining the significance of that, and he said, I am that I am. I mean, have you ever really stopped to ponder what that's really talking about? might be a little clearer if we said it this way, I am who I am. There's nothing fakey about God. I mean, in the right sense of the term, everything you see is everything you get. God is transparent. I am exactly who I portray myself to be. You ever had that experience with somebody where you get an image of them by being around them? They come across as this type of a person, and then you find out later that we all have private lives, of course. I understand that. It's not what I'm talking about. But later you find out that person's a rascal. And, wow, you're disappointed, right? Because all along you went and thinking you had respect for this person and they didn't turn out. But God is not that way. God is exactly who he says he is. So God is the source and he's good for it. 
Once you realize this, as I was approaching saying a moment ago, once you realize it's not our hard work, although God expects us to work hard. It's not our intelligence, although God gives a few of us some. Maybe I got out of line, I don't know. But you do meet smart people, and you can always respect that, and God gives us all enough intelligence to know how to get up in the morning and drive the car and all that kind of stuff, right? That's good to know. But it's not that. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter your ingenuity. It's not that that this is attributed to. It's God who gives us every good and perfect gift, as I said a moment ago. And when we acknowledge that, and, and the reason I say that is because, you know, you have a verse in the Old Testament. I used to, used to really ponder this verse to try to figure out how do you resolve the apparent tension in this verse between one thing that God says is good. Over and over and over in Proverbs, he talks about the value of labor, and in other places that work is an ethic that's a Christian ethic. Over and over again you find that in the Bible and yet it says a high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. You ever, ever hit that? Proverbs 21.4. Somehow you have to put those thoughts together to figure out what God is talking about when he makes the apparently contradictory statement that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Why is that so? Because he's going to take credit for it. But yet, because he has a high look and a proud heart. Because he doesn't acknowledge God. God is not in all his thoughts. And so he goes out and he uses God's dirt. He takes God's rain. He takes God's sunshine. Then he has a great crop, and at the end of the day, he never gives glory to God. That's what this is talking about. But in our lives, beloved, when we realize that God is the source of every blessing, and when God is also the source of the richest blessings, and he chooses to bestow some of those on us, when we acknowledge that, it puts God in a position all the more to want to do that for us. And I will just say, it is one thing to say what Jeremiah said in verse 17, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made heaven and earth, and by thy great power and thy stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. He's saying that here saying that from his head. And it's true. There's a lot of things we know in our head, but we're not saying them from here. This is exactly what he's talking about. Great and mighty. Look at verse 18. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers unto the bosom of their children after them. And look at this. Does this remind you of Jeremiah 33.3? Because he's saying it. He knows it already. The great the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open unto, upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So Jeremiah knows the theology, right? We might say if we were in a church that used one, but Jeremiah knew the catechism. Jeremiah knew the doctrine. He knew all that. It's one thing to know what appears, it's another thing to really apply it in your life. And this is what I think God is really challenging us to do, is to get this into our hearts. I'm the Lord. I made it. I formed it. My name is Jehovah. I keep my promises. You call unto me. If you don't incorporate prayer, if you don't sink, see the direct link between prayer and my flow of blessing, especially my richest blessings. But I want you to see that.
One should be challenged about that. Now, let's spend just a couple of moments uh, looking at this description. I don't have enough time to do this. I wish I did because, to me, this is almost the more exciting part of things. But uh, I'll do what I can with the time that's here. Call unto me. We've looked at those two concepts already. Call is the condition. Unto me, God is the source. What God now decides to give us a description of these blessings he's talking about. And I will show thee. I will reveal to thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Well, it isn't hard for us to understand great, but I want to spend my time talking about mighty. Because mighty is a little maybe different than what we're thinking. God is great. God is good. We, we learned that for a little blessing when we were kids, right? God is great and God is good. So I won't spend a lot of time on talking about how great God is. But he not only describes what he's going to show us in terms of these special blessings as great, he describes it as mighty. Now maybe you have a marginal reading here. And it says hidden. I will show thee great and hidden things which thou knowest not. Well, how do you get from mighty to hidden? And that's a valid question, but the hidden really is what the word is talking about. Let me, you're in Jeremiah, so you can keep a finger here. You're only going back a few pages. Go to Jeremiah chapter 5. Let me show you an identical use of the word where it's translated in its literal force. And then you'll be able to see where the, where the meaning by extension that we have in 33.3 comes from. Go to Jeremiah chapter 5 for a moment. So... Let's read this first, and then I'll show you what I'm after in it. Jeremiah 5, 17, and it says, And they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. And they shall eat up thy flocks and thine herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. They shall impoverish thy, what's the next word? Fenced cities. So we probably can kind of figure out what that's talking about because they did more than just put a three-board fence around the city, right? Defensed might be a better way for us to think about it in terms of what it's really getting at. But this word here translated fenced is the same word we have in Jeremiah 33 that's translated mighty. So let's see how we get from point A to point B. So if you defense a city by putting around it a great wall, well, I'll talk today about walls. <laughs> Let's say so you did this. You, you put the, and this is what they did. I mean, you read in the Old Testament, and some of the cities were fenced and some were not. In other words, some were open. You could just go right in and devastate the place. Others were fortified. Same idea, fortified. So you put this big wall up, and the first thing you know is, okay, if I'm on the outside, I can't get in. So what's inside the city to me is inaccessible. In that sense, it's hidden. Do you, do you see how you get from point A to point B with this concept that's involved? And that's why if you read a commentary on this or you have a marginal reading, it says fenced, or not fenced, it says hidden, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, how on earth do you get from point A to point B? That's how you do it. And that's what's exactly going on. I want to call your attention to five things, but I may just have to mention them. Not much time to speak about them. 
where you find this concept of things that are hidden. I already told you that what I was talking about was the fact that in 2019 there's so much that we anticipate and so much that we don't know it's hidden. Let's jump order a little bit and I'll start talking about this one. Do you know what's really hidden from us is the future. We don't know it. There's certain things you can see and sort of guess at, but we really don't know. You don't even know what's going to be 20 minutes from now. You think you know. You think you'll still be here in church. <laughs> but you really don't know what might be 20 minutes from now. The rapture might happen. Well, I'll tell you what. You wouldn't beat me saying hallelujah on the way up. But the future's hidden. Two guys were talking one time. The one guy asked the other guy, he said, if you could have anything in the world that you wanted, what would it be? This guy that answered the question, I don't know if he was a financial planner or just very canny, but you know what his answer was? If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? He said, next year's copy of the Wall Street Journal. Now think about that for a moment. What did he mean? Well, he meant that if I'm sitting here today and IBM stock is trading at $115 a share, and I have next year's copy of the Wall Street Journal and I read in there and look and on that particular day a year from now, IBM shares are trading at $175 a share. That's where I think I'm going to put some money. That's what he meant. But you know as much as you'd like to know the future and think it would be good, we don't know the future. Where do we find a verse for this? Look at Isaiah 48.6, where it talks about what's hidden. God says this, Thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it. I have showed thee new things, from this time even hidden things and thou didst not know them. What am I saying? Am I saying that if you pray right, God will show you the future a year from now in the Wall Street Journal? I'm not saying that. No, I'm just telling you that God knows the future. It's part of what's hidden to us. It's not hidden to God. And we have every confidence that the God who knows that as we draw close to him and take prayer seriously about the future that God will guide our footsteps and lead us in right paths. He'll show that to us. Things you need to know. You might, not, you might want to know them, but don't need to know them today. He might not show you today. But when you need to know, if you realize the link that's between prayer and God's richest blessings, you'll know what God wants you to do. His plans. Do you know what God is up to? Because I don't. I know some things, general things in the Bible. I know this is the church age. I know he's calling out of the nations of the earth a people under his name. I know that he's coming again. There's lots of general things I know. But I don't know how God figures it all out. I don't know how God figures out tomorrow. I don't know how he weaves so intricately together and plans things so that they all come out right. You heard this illustration before. You walk into someone's house and you see a beautiful rug you look at the patterns that are there and it's just beautiful and then someone says, to turn the rug over and you've got what seems like a confused mess. It looks like someone opened up the 
the phone cable on the street and it's like a hundred thousand wires that you can't figure how they do anything. It seems all confusing and a mess to us. To God it makes perfect sense. What God knows. Um, let me just point you to quickly to one verse. Turn back to Deuteronomy 29. I, I'm having to cut some here. Turn back to Deuteronomy 29, 29 for a moment. Talking about hidden things. Did you ever notice this verse? This thing's fighting me. Okay, now we're there. Deuteronomy 29, the last verse. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever and ever, that we may know all the words of this law. Secret things. You know, another of the Proverbs says something like this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And a lot of it is hidden. The secret things. There's many things that's known. That verse acknowledges that. Those things that are made known to us, they are ours to know. But God's counsels he often retains. He, we don't always see how God plans things and works things, but... We can pray. His wisdom, which makes so little sense to the world, quickly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. These are familiar verses, but I think you'll see an illustration here that it kind of excites me, to be honest with you. All of it does, but I really like this because it, it grabs a verse that a lot of us know. But beginning to read at verse 6, how be it, Paul says, we do speak wisdom among them that are perfect, that is mature, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen or ear heard, neither entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now we broaden that out, nothing wrong with that, but you know in the context he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about both human ignorance and demonic ignorance. If you want to think about it for a moment, human ignorance of how God's wisdom works, everybody thinks salvation ought to be by something you do and work for and earn. And God says it doesn't work that way. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so they didn't know that, so they put Jesus on a cross and the demonic powers that were involved with all of this as well. And they thought that they had achieved the victory. Finally, we didn't get him in the boat when we blew the waves up and tried to get him there. And he just stood up and said, hush, be muzzled. We didn't get him there. We got him here. No, no, on that day when Satan thought he had triumphed, instead the Lord of glory triumphed and won our eternal salvation. That's the wisdom of God. I'd like to know a little bit more about that, wouldn't you? Call unto me, then, he says. 
I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. I'd like to have more of the mind of Christ. I'd like to know more of God's thoughts. His judgments are things that we sometimes wonder about. I don't have time to talk about it. But in all of these things, we know what this verse is talking about is the things that we, in our moments of spiritual maturity and desire, our heart yearns and desires to know. Those things that are so anticipated and those things that are yet unknown are all within God's purview. And in however God has this worked out, there is some kind of a link between that and prayer for us to know and have God pour out as rich of a blessing upon us as he intends to pour out. There's a link between that and prayer. God is telling us he will increase our understanding in all of these areas if we pray. So I want to just end on this. Shouldn't that renew our determination in 2019 to spend more time in prayer, number one, and number two, more time calling and less time complaining. Missionaries tell a story of one particular region of Africa where when the gospel was going in a more concentrated way for the first time and the believers there would take seriously, they come to know Christ as Savior, and they would take very seriously this idea of reading their Bible and praying each day. And so, whenever someone maybe got a little careless about that, and the, the, the places that they would go to, their, their prayer rooms were a little different from ours. I mean, they would, they would just sort of take a little footpath, maybe out through the brush or something, until they get to a place where they could be alone with God and it was quiet. So when someone got a little careless and it kind of maybe became apparent to some of the other brothers or sisters that someone was getting a little careless about their time with the Lord and their prayer time, someone would say, friend, there's grass on your path. So maybe this morning as we bow our heads and close our eyes, that's the question that you want to ask yourself. A little grass grown on my path? really wonderful thing to commit ourselves to in 2019 is a more comprehensive, dedicated, for real prayer life. Father, as you are on your throne in all of your magnificence, we marvel at how you pray.